This is what the Lord has laid on my heart. But this is what the cancel culture can never do. The cancel culture can never stop the love of God. We know that the love of God reaches past all cultural boundaries. These ideas, number one, is what the cancel culture cannot do. So we're all affected by the different culture or cultural reactions and responses that are happening across our nation and the world. And so we have to adjust our practices and lifestyle because of a change in our culture. So some call the change in our culture cancel culture. But this is what the cancel culture can never do. The cancel culture can never stop the love of God. We know that the love of God reaches past all cultural boundaries. And there is never a man-made institution that can stop the power of the love of God. And so, as believers, we must hold on to this truth. And to share the love of God to those who do not know the Lord. Cancel culture, number two, cannot stop the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible actually says in Galatians, when it talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the scripture tells us that in Galatians, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And at the end of that description of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul wrote these interesting words. Against such, there is no law. The man-made law can never stop the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Why did Paul write that? Because there was a law in that land that was stopping the belief of Christianity. There was a spirit in Rome that would put people in prison or death if they claimed their spirit, their testimony as a Christian. And Paul said they can never make a law against the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They can't take that away from you. No, the power of the Holy Spirit can never be taken away. And cancel culture can't stop that. And then third, the cancel culture cannot stop the gospel from going forth. You see, the gospel goes forth into the world. It breaks boundaries of the culture. It breaks boundaries of government. It breaks boundaries of man's ideas of holding it back. And Becky and I and the saints, we are committed to go and tell the world the good news of Christ's love and salvation to all men and to all who will hear our message. 
No, the cancel culture can't stop that. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, we're going to look at two ideas, two verses here, and give us an idea of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth about how to respond correctly when there is a wrong response going on. So I entitled this message, Repentance is the Missing Trait of regeneration so regeneration is when someone says i believe in jesus i ask him to come into my life i'm a born again believer i am a christian according to the word of god well there is a trait a dna trait of the spiritual believer now I'm not because the holy spirit gives us understanding of the word of God. And spiritual DNA is that when a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. His life has a characteristic in his life. And one of the characteristics of a believer's life is the spirit of repentance. And you see, oftentimes I see people responding to the gospel without that trait. In fact, let's pick it up with verse 8. And it says in verse 8, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry. Though it were but for a season. So we have the word sorry in verse 8. And the word repent in verse 8. Being used in two different types of meaning. The first word sorry means people being, if I could use it carefully, an outward upset. And then the word repent in verse 8, Paul was writing, he says, listen, I regret or I change that I made you sorry. I'm sorry that you're sorry. Okay, and, and, and I didn't mean to make you sorry. I don't want you to have this outward sorry. But he did want them to have an inward change. So Paul is saying in verse 8, I'm sorry that you're sorry. In verse 9, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. So Paul's saying, hey, I'm happy, but not because you're sad. In verse 9, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. So there's two ideas in sorrow to repentance. Number one, sorrow means an outward influence of making you sad. So that you can have an inward change. It's the inward change that the Apostle Paul wants to have. But to bring that inward change, they needed to have an outward influence that caused them to have suffering. And so the Apostle Paul made them suffer 
by his words. Because he wrote to this church in 1 Corinthians of saying, you have a person in your church that is living in immorality and you need to change this. So now in verse, in chapter, uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he's following up with that. He's saying, hey, look, I know you guys have a bunch of problems. I know you're sad. I know you're sorry. I know you didn't like those words that I wrote in, in 1 Corinthians. But listen, those words are important and you need to have an infliction. And so Paul is saying in verse 9, but ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry, notice carefully, after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. So Paul's saying that ye might receive damage by us. Apostle Paul could come and bring God's judgment and power to the point of death in people's lives. And see, this church, they had this unbelief. They had this, well, maybe he was a believer. He said he was a believer. Committing immorality, committing adultery. And the church was hiding it. They didn't take that manner, that, that matter and fix it. So who was in sin? The person committing adultery. And the people, elders, pastors, believers that were hiding it. They are now affected by that sin. And so Paul's saying, hey, listen, you need, you need to evaluate and judge yourself. That's why he wrote that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. And as they look inwardly. Apostle Paul said, judge your heart that ye be not judged. But this is an interesting verse here in verse 9. After a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. What is a godly manner? Scripture explains scripture. So we look at verse 10. For godly sorrow. What is godly sorrow? Worketh repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of. You don't change your mind of wanting to receive the Lord as your Savior. So godly sorrow, that's true repentance, leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. So we have two sorrows. We have one sorrow that leads us to salvation. That's the good sorrow. Then we have another sorrow that in verse 10, it says the sorrow of the world worketh death. That's the outward showing of sorrow. And sometimes an outward affliction leads us to repentance that leads to salvation. And sometimes an outward affliction leads us just to worldly sorrow. And so we need to be careful as believers that we don't fall into the worldly sorrow. 
Not only does the unsaved come to know the Lord as their Savior and become a child of God through godly sorrow, but the believer also lives a lifestyle of manifesting godly sorrow. You see, that's the missing trait of regeneration is that godly sorrow. And so what is godly sorrow? The Apostle Paul takes an exposition of Scripture of verses 11 through 16 of explaining what godly sorrow is. But if I could give you a quick review of that. Godly sorrow. Number one, verse 11. For behold the selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sword. Here's the definition of godly sorrow with adjectives describing it. Carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. Revenge is a characteristic of godly sorrow. And all things ye have approved yourself to be clear in this manner. Listen, if you could take this verse and apply it to your spiritual condition and tell yourself, am I meeting up with these ideas that define godly sorrow? You do yourself well. Because it's not for me to judge you. It's the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that teaches and convicts and leads us. But I don't know about you, but I know about me. And I want to match my heart with verse 11. And see where I fall short at. You know, here's a great verse about repentance. You ready? 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The very first idea in 1 John 1, 9, confess. If we confess. Do you know what the word confess? Sometimes we think, you know, you need to confess. You know, we, we hear this word confess used in different situations like you know one needs to confess you know he's working with the enemy and he needs to you know repent of that and agree to work with the you know his captors and victors and so confess show your loyalty that's how we see the word confess in our society but the word confess actually means in simplistic meaning, agree. It means to agree. So if one was captured, they would say confess. That would show they're agreeing. And God says, if we agree. not When it says confess, it means agree. So if we could apply that definition in that word of verse chapter 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, if we agree 
with God about our sin. You see, agree with God about our sin. What does God think of sin? First of all, all mankind is in sin. They're conceived in sin. They're birthed in sin. They live in sin. They die in sin. Sin is their inherited their inherited nature. It's called the Adamic nature. The Adamic nature is that we all have sin. And because of that, we're on our way to hell. We're separated from God. That's the first thing God says about our sin. We're all separated from, our, from God and we're on our way to hell. Hell is real. Hell is true. Hell is a place of burning and torment. Hell is a place where it's reserved for Satan and his demons. And God says man will go to hell because of our sin. So God says if we agree with God about our sin. Do you believe what I just said? Do you agree with what I just said according to the word of God? Because that's the first step of agreeing. You and I deserve hell for all eternity because that's what God thinks of it. Amen. Do we agree with that? Amen. You know, there are people that will say, I don't agree that God wants to send everybody to hell. God, if God is a loving God, here's the quote of the, I like to say liberal, some say progressive. The progressive pursuit of God would say, God is loving, God is most loving, God is all loving, loving can't stop, God can't send everybody to hell for all eternity. Why? Because God is loving. It goes against the loving nature of God. That's progressive Christianity today. That's what's going on in evangelical churches in America and throughout the world. And that's a lie from hell. You see, because God is loving, and because he's loving, he doesn't want anybody to go to hell and has provided a way for them not to go to hell. That's the loveness and the loving of God. Not that he would allow sinners to burn all eternity in hell. God can't do that because he's loving. No, that's not the lovingness of God. That's the judgment of God. That's the equal exactness of the holiness of God. And God knows that his holiness is so, you know, powerful that man must go to hell for all eternity. And so God said, I'll put to death my son, Jesus Christ, so that they don't have to spend all eternity in hell. And so God made a way. God provided a way. If we agree with God, you and I deserve eternity burning in fire in hell for yours and my sin that we have done. Being born in this world with our Adamic nature deserves all eternity in hell. And we would say, how does that can be? Because the line of measurement is the perfection and holiness of God. And that's why it says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short 
of the glory of God, we all don't measure up to the holiness of God. Amen. And this is severe. This is severe agreement that we have to take. Do I agree with God about that? If someone would say, no, I don't agree with that, then they're really saying, I don't believe in all of the word of God. They like the good parts. What is the good part? God still loved the world. They love that part, that love part. They love that part. They love the love part. And, and listen, that's, that's my favorite Bible verse of all the Bible. And, and that's the greatest Bible verse of all the Bible. But the Apostle Paul said, hey, if you're going to live in sin, you got to get that right. And don't have a fake outward form of worldly repentance. Have a true heart of repentance. I'd like to ask if we could turn our Bibles over to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, to look at an interesting verse that I would quote for you, but I'll take a blessing away from you from being able to see it in the Word of God. But one of the greatest verses in all the Bible is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And in verse 9, 2 Peter says, The Lord is not slack, Concerning his promise. So God is not weak or short or late. God doesn't have a level of measurement that you and I think that he ought to be doing. And God's not slack. That's what the scoffer says. God is slack. That's what progressive Christianity says. God can't do all that. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But is long-suffering to us word. So God has, instead of slackness, what some people say is, God is patient and long-suffering. God is waiting for you and I patiently. Not willing that any should perish. You see, when it says the word any, it means all mankind. In Titus 2.11 it says, For the grace of God hath appeared unto all men. Just waking up in the morning and breathing in oxygen and looking at the sky and the handiwork of God's creation is the presentation of the beginning of the grace of God. And it hath appeared unto all men. And see, in Titus 2.11, God's grace has come to all men. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he's not willing that any should perish. And the scripture obviously says that he wants all in verse 9, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish. God doesn't want to see anybody in hell. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. But that all should come 
to repentance. God says repentance is the key to having a relationship with the Lord. Repentance, the idea of repentance means to say to sin, I don't want you. Don't come into my life. And having a hundred an 80 degree turn and saying, Lord Jesus, I want you be my Lord and Savior. That's what repentance is. Well, repentance is not an easy thing. Some make it difficult. So if we can finish up with Luke chapter 18, verse 23, the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler hardened his heart over the sins of covetousness and materialism. So we have this young man who owns much. And Jesus gives him a personal opportunity to have a tremendous relationship with him. We need to be careful that we don't take the Gospels and just say that's theology for every single person in the world. Okay? This is a personal illustration with a personal option of responding. And then we can take the spiritual principles of this parable or story, true story, and apply it correctly according to the uh, consistency of the scripture. So in Luke chapter 18, verse 23, and when he heard this, he was very sorrowful. There's that outward sorry. For he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, then who can be saved? And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So, a poor person can say it's hard for a rich person to go to heaven. That's easy. But how about a rich person saying it's hard for a rich person to go to heaven? But if we bring this back to this rich young ruler, this guy had land, this guy had money, this guy had material, this guy had wealth, and it wasn't just like some, like, oh, there's another rich guy. No, this guy was like in the top, you know, 1% of all the rich people around. And Jesus said, hey, you, you need to sell all your goods and give the money to the poor. And he said, are you out of your mind? He said, how can I even do that? How, can, how could he do that? I had to take it all down to the exchangers. 
get ripped off, take what 40% of his material that he owned and take that and then give it away. Don't you know that God would have took care of him exactly how he needed to be taken care of? But he couldn't let go of that. And let us not look down our nose because you and I probably would be very similar to that. How could we let go of everything we owned? Give it to somebody who would squelch it. And then say, okay, what's next, Lord? How? How? It is so difficult to grasp. And so this guy turned away and walked away. And he was sad. He had that outward form of sadness. And God said, listen, you want to have a true heart of repentance? Seek the repentance in your heart. How about the publican and the Pharisee? The publicans cried out and said, God, please forgive me of all my sin. Here he is collecting taxes from his own people to give to a ruling uh, military government. And he's saying, God, please forgive me. And then the Pharisee says, you know, I've been helping everybody at the church. God, you've been blessing me so much, all these goods. I just want to say thank you for that. And Jesus said, which one's being heard? The great sinner who needs to repent. And the Pharisee is being left behind. Repentance is simple and freely available. But for some, it's hard to accept. So, let's not be like the church of Laodicea. Who needed to repent of their hard-heartedness over self-sufficiency. And dependency on their own riches. But become, as Jesus said, to buy I slave so they could become repenting of their sins. Just go to conclusion here. Can we go to our hearts and search carefully? Can we look at what repentance God has done in our lives? And take time to carefully search that. Can we consider, have we confessed? And re, or do we just go into like repeated phrases? One ought to consider if he replaced repentance with service. Like Mary and Martha. One served. The other one sat at the feet of Jesus and listened. So let's take time to seek a private time of quietness, mourning, fasting, to receive a spirit of repentance. And receive God's spirit to have in all of our hearts. I'd like to ask for every head bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around as we conclude in prayer. And I would like to say, Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. 
And Lord, we once again ask for your mercies to be in our hearts and our lives. And friend, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you've never had a time of inviting the Lord Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, I'd like to invite you here today. Would you call on the name of the Lord and invite him in your life and tell him this in your own words, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the grave, proving you are God. Would you tell that to the Lord? And Lord, I ask you to come in my life. Forgive me of my sin and save me now. Would you ask that from the Lord quietly in your heart? And if you've never asked the Lord Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, call on the Lord today and ask him to be your Savior. And if that's your prayer, your decision, if that's what you've done today, you prayed that prayer with me, I'd like to ask if you would just slip your hand up high as a testimony of praise to the Lord and then put it right back down again. You're saying, yes, Tony, I ask Jesus to be my personal Savior. And friend... Christian, let the Holy Spirit do a work in our hearts of convicting us of taking us deeper with the Lord and asking us to give us a, a true spirit of repentance that God will be glorified through. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.